The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins. Coming up on today's show, we're talking Congressman Warren Davidson on his takeaways from a hearing with the heads of major U.S. banks. But first, we are going to be talking with going to our colleague Emily Chang, who is now speaking with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on a little bit more about President Biden's infrastructure plan that he is currently rolling out across the country. He was in Ohio today. We're going to go to Emily for a little bit more. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. President Biden chose Cleveland as the city to deliver a speech on the economy and his proposed $1.9 trillion infrastructure and investment plan. For more on what that plan entails, our audiences across Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, welcome Gina Raimondo, U.S. Commerce Secretary. Secretary Raimondo, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, President Biden today said his economic plan is working to bring America out of the pandemic, but we need to invest more in education, in infrastructure to stay competitive. What are the musts that you believe need to be included? Yes, thank you. Well, this is about rebuilding for the future. I mean, the president is, of course, right. The rescue package is working. It's it's pulling us out of the pandemic creating a half a million jobs a month, which is a fantastic pace. But we need to prepare for the future. We need to invest in child care so that people can go back to work. We still have two million women who have dropped out of the workforce. We have to make sure every American has access to broadband. The president's calling for historic investments in broadband. It's, it's, it's not okay. It's not acceptable that we still have millions of Americans without access to broadband. We need to invest um, in job training and apprenticeships so people can have the skills they need to get the jobs of today and tomorrow. And we need to invest in manufacturing so that we make critical goods such as semiconductors in America again. So, you know, it's not enough to um, pull ourselves out of the pandemic. It's time to rebuild, rebuild our infrastructure, rebuild for the future so Americans can compete and our and our children have a chance. And yet the counteroffer from Republicans doesn't seem much higher than the original. Where's the progress that you see and how long is it worth continuing the negotiation? Yes, well, I should say, you know, we have to give them credit. I have been involved in these discussions and in these negotiations. They are operating in good faith, and they came back to us uh, with a higher number. It is progress. There's no doubt about it. It's progress. I think if I had said to you a few months ago that Republicans would be coming back to the president with a nearly trillion-dollar counteroffer, you, you might not have believed it. So we're still at the table. We are trying. It isn't enough, as you say. Um, they're not very clear about how they propose to pay for it. 
And, of course, the president has been crystal clear. We're not going to tax or burden uh, middle America or middle class Americans. But, you know, our, our job is to stay at the table and to find some common ground. And so we will continue to do that. The president talked about how the administration is working to combat supply issues, combat issues with computer chips, as you mentioned. And America can't innovate without chips. You just held a summit with the companies that supply chips and the companies that need chips, from Google to Amazon to car makers. What's the next step here? So right now, as we are talking to one another, uh, the the... The piece of legislation which would fund a semiconductor fund at $52 billion is on the Senate floor. In fact, I was talking to senators before I came over here, and there is a sense of optimism that this will get across the finish line perhaps as early as today or tonight uh, to fund a CHIPS fund at $52 billion, which would come to the Department of Commerce So, of course, it's not over till it's over, and, of course, it has to get through the House. But at this point, I think there's broad bipartisan recognition that we can't afford not to do this. Think about your own life. Everything you do relies upon chips. Um, You you know, your, your phone, your appliances, your computer, your car, artificial intelligence, not to mention the national defense application. So we have to get it done, and I believe we will get it done. Are you hearing what you want to hear from the industry? Are you getting what you need on that front? Yes, uh, yes, thank you. So as you mentioned, I convened over 35 CEOs last week, leaders in the semiconductor industry, and they have been very collaborative and really leaning in with us to find a solution to this problem. It's, It's an economic security problem. It's a national security problem. And I have to say thank you to everyone that we have been engaged with. They've they've been great partners. And this will require public-private partnership. Uh, We can't do it. Government can't fix this problem alone, and the private sector needs to be there, and I think they will be. GM just announced it's restarting production at several plants that had been idled due to the chip shortage. Meantime, you've got COVID cases rising in Taiwan, which is the heart of the semiconductor industry. Could that impact supply, and will the U.S. do anything to help? Well, you put your finger on a very important problem, which is that we are uh, heavily dependent on a company called TSMC, which is based in Taiwan, uh, for a high percentage of our semiconductors, and which is exactly why we need to make semiconductors in America. You know, it, it, it would be our plan to build another six or seven manufacturing operations in America over time so that we won't be so vulnerable um, to, you know, relying overly on one company or one uh, country. So uh, speaking of countries, obviously improving infrastructure, improving supply chains helps to boost U.S. competitiveness against China. The administration has been reviewing its approach to China. When are we going to hear more about the findings and the strategy there? I would say that this is an ongoing process, more than a process with a you know, particular big announcement or deadline. But we're doing it now. You know, For example, uh, what we're talking about, semiconductors, that's core 
to our strategy as it relates to China. We need to invest in America. The president's jobs plan is all about competing with China, improve our education system, improve our infrastructure, invest in manufacturing. You know, the way to compete with China is to run faster, to invest in America. Um, and then in terms of defense, we haven't slowed down. You know, in my department, we've continued to add Chinese companies to the entities list. We've uh, subpoenaed a number of Chinese companies to extract information from them. And we're going to do what we need to do to protect American industry. Meantime, the Colonial Pipeline hack has raised awareness about the vulnerability of our infrastructure to cyber attacks. What do you see as the biggest risks to businesses here? And what does your budget do to address this? Yeah, unfortunately, this is a large and growing risk to U.S. businesses. And I think Colonial was a wake up call to all American businesses that uh, they need they need to do more. And I think particularly smaller businesses uh, for, for whom it is difficult need to invest more. Um, we are investing heavily uh, at the Commerce Department in shoring up our own cybersecurity as well as researching uh, cyber and cyber technology so that we could continue to make ourselves more secure. Now, the president also today emphasized how the administration is working to uh, protect small businesses from anti-competitive forces. The U.S. obviously has expressed concerns about big U.S. tech companies and their power. Europe also has expressed those concerns. Will big tech regulation be on the agenda for the G7? Uh, you know, that is a better question uh, for uh, the Treasury Secretary or others. I would say, for my part, um, we are heavily engaged with the EU in discussions around uh, privacy, privacy protection of data, uh, tech regulation. And the our collaboration uh, and partnership with Europe is important. It's important for companies on both sides of the Atlantic. And so we are working. I am in constant contact with tech companies in America to make big and small to make sure that their interests are represented, but also with our counterparts in Europe to make sure, you know, we're allies. We are we have the same same values. We believe in privacy. We believe in openness uh, and so we are working hard with the Europeans to come to a common set of um, values so that we can continue to operate across the Atlantic. All right. Well, on behalf of our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences, thank you so much. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo there. Uh, Secretary Raimondo, appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for to our radio audiences for listening. That was Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo talking with uh, our my colleague Emily Chang. Uh, joining me now is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis. Rick, always glad to have you with us. Uh, just a lot of topics that that they managed to touch on there. I'm wondering sort of what your initial takeaway is from what we heard from the secretary today. 
Yeah, Emily, I think it's a wide-ranging interview, but uh, really focused on reinforcing the advantages of the infrastructure bill that the president is uh, trying to push through Congress. Uh, very positive reaction by Secretary Raimundo about Republican bipartisan efforts to try and get a deal done. So uh, maybe there's some optimism there. And then she really focused on the inadequate chip supply that the U.S. has and what are they doing about it in the Biden administration. And I thought it was really interesting you know, how she pointed out that TSMC, uh, one of the largest in the world, uh, Taiwanese chip manufacturer, you know, poses a high risk for us because of the amount of chips that we get. I, I would point out that they recently signed a deal in Arizona uh, led by Governor Doug Ducey to put a $12 billion chip factory there as part of TSMC's expansion in the United States. So there's, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, it's a critical component of infrastructure. The debate on Congress has been mostly focused on things like roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, uh, things like that. But uh, our digital infrastructure, 5G, uh, the, the tech capability around chips, uh, is critically important to that competition with China. So uh, I think that uh, it was really a good time in this debate to hear from Secretary Raimundo. Well, you know, Rick, as you as you point out, we do have the Senate right now doing that debate um, on particularly a bill that could get more funding, billions of, of more funding to those chip shortages. Really quick, in just 10 seconds here, I know that you mentioned the factory. We've mentioned this funding. How long would it actually take, though, for the U.S. to be able to produce enough chips that we can be self-reliant? Yeah, well, there's so many component parts to this, right? You know, the infrastructure is not just a chip factory, but all the components and the and the resources that go into the manufacturing process. So it's going to take some time. I mean, it's kind of arbitrage, right? I mean, what do you do first? What do you do? Or triage. What do you do first, second, third? Um, extra $52 billion, though, will go a long way of getting us yeah. started. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and joined today by Adam Goodman, the Edward R. Murrow Senior Fellow at Tufts University, a national GOP strategist and columnist. Got an A-team here today, which is great because we have got lots and lots of news to cover tomorrow. It's the Friday before a three-day weekend, but the Biden administration is not letting anyone sneak out of work early. They are releasing their $6 trillion budget proposal that will kick off the all-important appropriations process in Congress that will hopefully not lead to a government shutdown. Uh, the proposal, from what we know at this point, would reportedly run a near $2 trillion deficit even with new taxes on corporations and high earners that the president has proposed. Some Republicans say the president's programs already are hurting the economy by inflating wages, driving up prices. But in a speech today in Ohio, the president says his plan supports working families, which he said is the true backbone of the economy. Here's the sound on that. I believe this is our moment to rebuild an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, not a trickle-down economy from the very wealthy. That has never benefited people who are at this college or any other 
place where they're trying to make a living. You know, Adam, Rick, every time the president comes out with a budget, I feel the need to, like, add the disclaimer that the budget is its part suggestion, part wish list from the White House. The power of the purse still rests in Congress and members of Congress. You know, they, they pay attention to the president's budget, but they, they've all got their own agendas. That said, the beauty of the budget is to kind of get a sense of what the president is thinking of, what his priorities are, where the wind is blowing. Adam, I know that we're going to see this budget in total when it comes out tomorrow. But from what you've seen reported on today, is anything standing out to you about what Biden's suggesting here? Yes, the number, right? That's a big, big number, the $6 trillion. And, you know, you're moving into the biggest, potentially the biggest government expansion in the history of mankind here. And uh, based on the idea of giving more stuff to more people at mind-boggling cost, and uh what has not been explained, of course, are the details. This is like a giveaway uh, of a lot of uh, tax dollars in a lot of different directions. And you know what it really goes into, Emily? This is a, the thing that is going to probably determine whether or not most, all, or some gets through. It's really a referendum on government. Government right now, you look at Pew, Pew Research, their latest ranking show Government's at an all-time low, practically at 24 percent. Trust in Congress, they're minus 30 percent. Right, wrong direction of the country, up to minus 15 percent. So what President Biden is asking is for the people of America to trust that this budget is all going to good stuff, that it's going to be well spent, it's going to be efficiently spent, and it's all going to be controlled by politicians and bureaucrats at a time when the ratings on both of those and on government or at, at or near all-time lows. That is what we're going to be watching in slow motion here. But $6 trillion is a lot of money, uh, with a lot of questions being asked about truly how we're going to be able to afford it. No, Adam, it definitely is. I think I saw somewhere today that this is the largest budget request since World War II. It definitely follows what we've already seen with President Biden and sort of his reshaping of what role the government plays, trying to really make sure that they are doing, um, you know, supporting the, the middle uh, and low-income families and individuals in a way that we really haven't seen from, from previous administrations. I mean, Rick Davis, the, the other thing that this could potentially run into that everyone one is watching right now is inflation. Uh, today we heard Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen say that inflation is actually likely to go up in the next few months. Then she said that it, it would be coming down, it would stabilize. But the next few months are when these negotiations are going to happen. How likely is this to impact this budget process we're about to see? Yeah, it's a rough start. Uh, April inflation number 4.2 percent, the largest in 13 years. And he releases a budget that, as Adam says, uh, uh, blows your socks off. He said he was going big. Nobody thought he's going this big. Uh, and and so um, I think I think that is going to be central to the debate because even in this budget, according to the reports I've read, is he's predicting a pretty slow growth rate for the United States. And so all of that adds to the overall deficit, and all of that is going to put pressure on how you pay for it. And I think he'll have his moment in the sun tomorrow when he presents this thing. He'll talk about all these great bells and whistles he's got chucked into a six trillion dollar. Uh, uh, budget. But at the end of the day, the debate's going to quickly pivot to revenue. And where do you find the money for this? And at a time when you're just on the verge of inking a deal on infrastructure, I think you're, you're going to be really set back with this big number being out there. I think that 
the, the fear I would have in the Biden White House is that this dislodges the, per, the, the, the progress they've made this week on a bipartisan infrastructure bill. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Emily Wilkins, here as I so frequently am with our wonderful Bloomberg Politics contributor, Rick Davis, and joined today as well by Adam Goldman, Edward R. Murrow, senior fellow at Tufts University and national GOP strategist and a columnist. I love it. We're just like, we're getting all of Adam's accolades in here right now. Well, today, one of the biggest news is broke this morning. We're going to continue to follow this, but Senate Republicans have come back with their latest counteroffer to President Biden's infrastructure plan. The Republicans have upped the price tag to $928 billion. That's still well below President Biden's $1.7 trillion. Uh, But that's not the only gap in where Republicans and Democrats are. Republicans refuse to budge on their opposition to tax increases for wealthy individuals and large corporations. At a Capitol Hill news conference this morning, Republican Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, one of the lead Republican negotiators on this, said the plan calls for using unspent COVID relief funding to pay for traditional infrastructure projects. Here's the sound on that. We have stayed within the boundaries of our original um, plan. Uh, I think that's what the American people think of when they think of uh, of infrastructure, and that's certainly what we do, too. President Joe Biden said that he will meet next week with the group of Senate Republicans, but he told reporters today that a decision would need to be made soon. And he said the exact same thing to Senator Capito. Capito told reporters that after a brief call with Biden, he told her to keep moving forward, but cautioned that he doesn't want this to drag on for forever. Rick Davis, forever is a very long time. Initially, we had heard a deadline of Memorial Day, which if Biden's meeting with these senators next week, they're they're not going to make that deadline. What is the timeline here? How much pressure is on Biden to come to a negotiation in the next week, in the next month? I mean, how much longer can can Democrats try to get to yes with Republicans for? Yeah, Emily, as we know, I mean, Democrats are putting a lot of pressure, Democrats on the Hill, a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to not let Republicans do what they claim we did in, in the Biden or in the Obama administration where we negotiated and negotiated and negotiated and then ultimately wouldn't agree to anything. Uh, I think this is a different dynamic. Uh, obviously, the White House is putting some pressure on Republicans, telling them they want to deal by Memorial Day. Um, there's been progress. I mean, it's been a really good week, I think, for the infrastructure negotiations. Uh, Biden has been flexible. The, the Republicans keep adding money to their bill. Uh, there's a lot of progress on other uh, competitiveness bills that worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, if I'm Biden, I think I'd look at the White House and say a, a bipartisan deal is a huge coup. So why not stick to it until we get one? And until we see these things actually start to go in the opposite direction, don't worry about it. Press for a deal. Yeah, you know, the White House, you know, they actually were very welcoming so far of this Republican plan. Uh, you know, despite these disagreements, uh, we have Press Secretary Jen Psaki today on Air Force One sounding very, very optimistic about things going forward. Here's the sound on that. 
We have a counter offer on the table where the number came up significantly from the prior offer, where there was an increase in proposed funding and roads, rails, and bridges. There are some areas uh, that we uh, would like to see more funding in that we think are essential to the American workforce. Now, you, we have seen, as Rick pointed out, sort of, you know, the two sides come together. You've seen them negotiate on numbers. But I, I'm thinking here, you know, if, if Biden and Republicans keep inching forward, maybe they come to an agreement around, let's say, $1.3 because that's kind of in the middle of where they are. It's roads, it's bridges, it's public transit, broadband. I, I'm wondering, Adam, is there a risk then that some Democrats might look at that agreement and say, absolutely not? Uh, we've got 50 votes in the Senate. We have the majority in the House. We have the White House. Why are we going so low when we could be passing much more through budget reconciliation? Is there is there a big danger there that this negotiation might not work because not all Democrats will be on board? <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit, Emily, because you, you're assuming that all Democrats always row together. Right? <laughs> you could say the same about Republicans. I agree with what Rick was talking about uh, in terms of the infrastructure and the politics of the infrastructure. Frankly, I think this was the biggest miss uh, by the former president, uh, Donald Trump, you know, the master builder. This Getting an infrastructure program should have been something that he would have accomplished. But let's be real about it. Uh, we're talking about a, you know, a little over a trillion dollars. The civil engineers of America say it's going to take two to four trillion just to fix what's broken. The easy part of this is twofold. One is that there is a demonstrated and uh, and public need for it and a public thirst for it, right? And the second thing is this should be the easiest thing for Republicans and Democrats to come around and agree on. Uh, it's compelling. It, you have these visuals, by the way. You talk about infrastructure. You can visualize the improvements in infrastructure literally in every local community in America. You could actually show pictures of that. That's a great you know, way to sell an idea. I think people could rally around that. The Republicans are saying, let's make, it, make sure we start with hard infrastructure. Let's get there first. Um, and I think that's a win that the president and Democrats should try to grab and run with because the other stuff under the $6 trillion we've been talking about is going to be far more difficult. If there's anything to get bipartisan kind of agreement on, and to make people feel, okay, so Washington isn't completely at loggers' heads with each other. This is the place to do it. This is the opportunity for it. And despite all that, there's certainly there'll be some Democrats who won't like it. And, uh, and one thing we've seen recently is they will not be silent about their disagreements. Absolutely. So, Adam, um, I'm going to do something fun and put you on the spot real quick. In 10 seconds, what should be the new deadline for a negotiation? Tonight. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, and we are now joined by Congressman Warren Davidson, a Republican representing Ohio's 8th Congressional District and Congress's residency cryptocurrency guru. He is a member of the House Financial Services Committee, who today had a big hearing where they heard testimony from the CEOs of six of the largest U.S. banks. Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to joining us today. Uh, A big hearing, big names, lots of uh, pretty heated questions. What was your takeaway from the hearing today? Well, uh, look, you teed it up on the crypto lane, and so one of the questions I asked Jamie Dimon 
was about that, about his uh, changing views on crypto. Uh, and he kind of said, well, you know, my own views haven't changed that much, but at least he's recognizing that the market wants to be able to have access to, to these products. Uh, you know, he kind of said, well, I personally still don't think things that aren't backed by an asset. So he's like, okay, stable coins are fine, uh, but other things he had concerns about personally. Nevertheless, they're going to offer the product for their private wealth clients. Part that he didn't get to that I'd like to have as a follow-up is, what would it take to have regulatory clarity for the regular investors, retail investors? Because the reality is people with their retirement savings, IRAs, 401ks, haven't been able to invest directly into crypto uh, with those because Congress and the SEC have not provided that clarity. I mean, does more clarity then need to be provided on crypto? Do we need to see some regulations either from Congress or from the SEC that really sort of lay out the standards and and maybe make crypto something that more investors are interested in getting into? Yeah, I mean, look, it's already grown to, you know, a two, two and a half trillion dollar market cap. So over the past five or six years, the growth has been tremendous. It's been overall over the last decade, the best performing asset class. Uh, with a lot of volatility and, frankly, a fair bit of fraud with you go back to 2017 in the ICO market. Uh, you know, regulatory arbitrage is one of the things that companies have tried to do and say, you know, we're not really a security when in reality they're just skirting regulations. They've been able to get away with that and just count on enforcement by the SEC because Congress hasn't done, you know, our job and passed a law. So Darren Soto from Orlando, a Democrat, and I have proposed the Technical Autonomy Act. That's one solution. We'd love to get it into a hearing and have a debate about that, do amendments, and get something across the finish line. But in the meantime, I'm really encouraged by Chairman Gensler. He's really taking a fresh approach, and he clearly understands the topic. I also want to ask you about another thing uh, that Jamie Dimon said. Uh, He said that he doesn't think that that the U.S. has done public policy particularly well uh, with infrastructure, immigration, healthcare taxation, regulation, uh, stifled the formation of small businesses, and that American leadership really matters. And if we don't get our economic act together, we won't be a leader in 20 years. What is your response to that? Well, he identified some really important issues. I mean, I agree with a number of his public policy statements there. I mean, frankly, one of the things that he had in exchange with uh, my colleague Brian Stile from Wisconsin was, you know, fundamentally the, the, the fiscal policy as proposed by President Biden and uh, the monetary policy reinforced by Fed actions are juicing inflation and average uh, wage earners are, are at risk of being harmed significantly by by, by the growing inflation. The point that wasn't mentioned that's really true is fixed income folks, seniors and people, retirees, uh, are really going to get crippled off of this inflation. So it makes sense to get all of our policies right. And while infrastructure is important, it needs to be focused on infrastructure, not uh, the package that's currently on the table. I do want to ask you a little bit more about infrastructure, because today we saw your Senate colleagues move closer to an agreement with President Biden. It seems like negotiations are now going to continue into next week, and we've seen the two sides get closer. I'm just wondering what you think about these negotiations between Senate Republicans and President Biden. Are are you optimistic that there's going to be legislation from this that you and your colleagues in the House can support? Well, think about how crazy it would be to hear a proposal for a $900-plus billion infrastructure proposal just a few years ago. 
at any point in time, if that was proposed, it would have said, wow, that's a pretty audacious proposal, right? I mean, we couldn't get a vote on a proposal that was bipartisan in the House that was for an $80 billion infrastructure bill. Mostly that was because Nancy Pelosi didn't want to let Congress vote on an infrastructure bill that Donald Trump could take credit for going into an election. Um, but the reality is it was viewed as contentious to have an $80 billion proposal. So this is more than 10 times that bill that we couldn't vote on last Congress, and uh, it's, it's basically dismissed out of hand by, by Joe Biden. And frankly, even Joe Biden's proposal for $2 trillion is met with frustration from the Green Deal, Green New Deal folks on the squad and other, others that want $7 trillion in infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, the idea that we could just print this money with no consequences, let's go back to the inflation. You're fundamentally undermining the value of the dollar, uh, which will hurt our ability and our standing globally because we're depending on the U.S. dollar to be the world's reserve currency. If we keep doing these things, we're really going to impair that uh, standing for the U.S. dollar. So it sounds like then you're not particularly optimistic in Senate Republicans and President Biden getting some sort of infrastructure deal that that is going to be welcomed by by the wider Democratic caucus or or even within Congress as a whole. Is that fair to say? We just seem so far apart on a lot of things. I mean, to me, you know, 900 billion still seems pretty crazy, but it was not even met with receptive uh, dialogue from, you know, any corner that I've seen so far today. You know, maybe that's early stage posturing and eventually that gets to something that enough senators can agree with. And in the House, I mean, Pelosi doesn't care whether it gets one Republican vote. She's going to call the votes and get it across the finish line, which highlights how important the filibuster rule is to how the Senate works. I mean, if they can peel off 10 10 Republican senators, then they've got the 60 votes they need to move a bipartisan package across the finish line. Speaking of bipartisanship, we're seeing the Senate today take a number of votes on legislation that's supposed to bolster the U.S.'s economic competitiveness with China. Uh, we've seen a, a number of amendments come. Obviously, there, there's still plenty of debate going on, uh, but it seems like it could be potentially poised to pass. It's cleared one of the first procedural hurdles. Of course, this bill has not yet been taken up in the House, uh, and it would be headed there next if it passes the Senate. What are your thoughts in regards to this legislation? Uh, what are you thinking about as it, as it moves through the Senate? Is this something that, that you think can be passed in the House at this point? Uh, you know, it probably can. Uh, we'll see You know what, what kind of things uh, Speaker Pelosi has to do to get it to the floor. Uh, and look, we'd like to find something that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. Uh, but it's been painful this past year to watch how politicized literally everything has become. Uh, and with respect to China, you saw people side with China uh, over, you know, any any logic about what's going on in Wuhan. Uh, side with China uh, over, well, we can just ignore what's going on with the way they treat Uyghurs, but yet we can have this discussion about all the sins of America's past. We can't even deal with the present in China. And, and let's not forget the importance of our trade deals, uh, because, you know, trade is still broken with China. China is still stealing intellectual property. They're still blocking market access, and they're still subsidizing and dumping products in to shape markets and steal market share from American and global companies. Frankly, uh, our trading partners around the world would agree China treats them the same way they do us. And so we should really be using all these kind of uh, relationships with China 
to make them honor their existing commitments to be a market economy as part of the World Trade Organization. Well, one of the things, Congressman, that does seem to have gotten some bipartisan support is the endless frontier approach that's been going on in the Senate recently. And uh, I assume you'll see uh, equal amount of bipartisan support for that competitiveness bill in China. Uh, we heard from uh, Secretary Raimundo earlier about some of the money in there for uh, creating a more vibrant uh, chip economy here in the United States. Uh, is China the, the, the common denominator to getting uh, bipartisan support these days? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, it, it's definitely something that's going to resonate with Republicans, and uh, and we certainly hope that it stays strong with Democrats. I mean, that may be something that unites us. And, you know, we're all hopeful that China honors their commitments and we trade together. But, you know, Xi Jinping's really a pretty big departure from the way China was trying to engage, not just with the United States of America, but with the West broadly. And the way they're treating, you know, developing economy is kind of a new form of imperialism. So hopefully, you know, I'm encouraged when I hear Secretary Blinken talking about um, China refusing to, to engage in the rules-based uh, order. And by that, he's referring China's not honoring their commitments. They break their deals. So I hope that all of this works together to get leverage, and I'm encouraged when I hear that kind of dialogue from our State Department. You know, Congressman, you're absolutely right. I mean, we heard yesterday sort of the White House's uh, top advisor in Asia say that we're going from uh, being to a level of engagement with China to a level where we're just going to be more competitive with them. Uh, Congressman, forgive me. There's one question that I'm just dying to ask. We only have 10 seconds left. Dogecoin, yes or no? I wouldn't buy it personally, but we've all missed out if we haven't been trading it. <laughs> well, Congressman Warren Davidson, thank you again so much for taking the time and joining us today. That is it for today's show. Thank you so much to politics contributor Rick Davis, as well as Adam Goodman. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.